0: If you're with us here this morning and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles right now. They have Bibles, and if you just wave to them, they'll get one into your hands. Always best to hear the Word of God, being able to read it at the same time. And then if you don't own a Bible, just simply take that one home with you, and now you have one. I want everyone to have a Bible. Sunday mornings we're studying uh, the book of 1 Peter, and we're going to pick things up. This morning in chapter one, verses 14 through 16, but we'll start in verse 13 to establish a little context. Peter writing inspired by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind and be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ as obedient children. Not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance, but as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. Let's pray together. Father, we love your word. It's a living book. It lives in us. It speaks to us. It never grows old, Lord. Amazing. Alive. It's powerful, sharper than a two edged sword. And we feel that life. And we love to feel the life of your word. Only the Creator could know us the way that you know us. And only the Creator could speak to us the things that you know as you know. What we need to hear. We thank you for the revelation of your word. We always thank you for the privilege of being able to open up this book. Never to do it alone. But always in fellowship with you. And the ministry of your Holy Spirit. And we ask Lord that you would speak to us. Through these three verses this morning. That you would continue to fashion our life after the image of Christ as we study your word this morning, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. In writing this letter to suffering Christians, the Apostle Peter uh, next touches upon the subject of holiness. It's interesting to me when you realize the focus of the letter is is that he is writing to Christians who are either in the middle of a very, very serious suffering or it's right at their doorstep. And you think if you were going to sit down and you were going to write a letter, and I know this is inspired by the Spirit, you say, what would I speak in terms of practical instruction to men and women that are... In the middle of that kind of a circumstance and you you would begin somewhere you'd have a point number one and then the next thing that would come to your mind and the next thing and so forth and it fascinates me in terms of the priorities and the subject matters that uh, Peter begins with as we saw last week in terms of the practical instruction part of the book he began with the mind the importance of a disciplined mind when we find ourselves in this kind of. Difficulty, And then now he moves on to the subject of holiness and obedience, which is a little bit odd to me, not super odd to me, but a little bit odd to me in this sense. I would think that if you are going to speak to people that are in the degree of suffering that these people are finding themselves in the middle of, that it is absolutely not a time for exhortation. But it is a time for just pure encouragement to them of their faith. And yet we're going to see that this exhortation to holiness is one of the greatest encouragements that we can receive when we find ourselves in the midst of trial or in the midst of difficulty. He exhorts us in verse 15 that we are to be holy in all of our conduct. And so he tells us, Peter does, as God's people, that we are to be holy. That's always a good reminder. And it's a needed reminder because we live in a world that is very unholy. And if we're a Christian and we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us, then we realize that the world is not only unholy, but it is becoming dramatically more unholy by the day, by the week, by the month. And so we need this reminder Uh, To our lives, that our lives are to be holy, even in a context of unholiness and that that's something that's possible for us as uh, Christians. Now, I think about this when I read an exhortation like this to be holy, and I think about other people reading it as well. I think that many people that just simply raises the question of what in the world is holiness? What is this? holiness that Peter is exhorting us to or that he is encouraging us to and what in the world does it look like? And I think that that's a great question because the subject of Christian holiness is not only, in my opinion, completely misunderstood by the world, those that don't know the Lord, but it is largely misunderstood even by Christians, And so what in the world is this thing called holiness? And one of the things that the problems that we have with getting some kind of a grasp on this thing called holiness, which is very clearly in the Bible important to God and and as a result is important to us, is that religious people all through the ages have taken and sought to help God out in establishing holiness, what holiness is, and then establishing it. In his people and typically what uh, certain kinds of religious people have done to holiness is that they have added their man made ideas or their man made concepts to holiness and they have then attached them to God's definition of holiness uh, in the scriptures and so all of these ideas about what it means to be holy and Jesus had to deal with it continually in his public ministry, especially dealing with. Two particular sects of Judaism at that time, the scribes and the Pharisees, who were uh, they were legalistic sects among uh, the Jews. And so he was constantly dealing with them and they were constantly uh, at confrontive with him because he simply ignored and continually violated uh, their man made Uh, Opinions about holiness and the commandments and the rules that they came up with to uh, try and make God's people holy. And so Jesus had to deal with it continually because of the legalism of much of Judaism at the time. Now, a legalist is a religious person who typically will take a very simple command from God's word and then they'll add something to it. They will make that command more demanding than God ever intended it to be, or they will make that command harder to obey than God ever intended it to be. So this is what a legalist does to a simple uh, command of God. Examples of what the uh, children of Israel and the Jewish legalists had done with the law of Moses in Jesus' day, part of what he was dealing with at the time. For instance, God had declared to the children of Israel that they were to keep the Sabbath. That that was a part of their holiness. The Sabbath is a Saturday. It's as simple as that. And he told them that Saturday was to be a day of rest for them. That's all it was to be. They were to earn a living. They were to uh, do all the things that they would normally do in in life in the six days. But the seventh day was to be a day of rest, a day in which uh, commerce, money making, uh, selfism, any whatever was just laid by the side. And on that day was given for them just to rest a day set aside to seek God and grow deeper in their relationship with the Lord. And God knew in the context of that entire part of the world, then all of the nations around Israel, That if they would just simply keep the Sabbath one day out of the week, the Saturday, and use it to rest and to seek God, that that would make them distinctive among the peoples of the world. It would make them holy. It would make them different. You didn't need to add to it. You don't need to make it harder. You didn't need to complicate it. All you needed to do was just obey that And then the word would be out to everyone else in the world. Those folks follow a different God with a different set of priorities than the gods that we serve and the priorities of the gods that we serve. But the legalists can't leave something like that alone. They feel like it's not powerful enough. God needs some help related to all this. And so the legalists in Jesus's day, they took and. Uh, began to uh, add to and further define what God was, uh, God the application of the Sabbath uh, related to God's people, and so they declared that you couldn't wear false teeth on the Sabbath day because they might accidentally fall out. We praise the Lord for implants today, but they might accidentally fall out, and of course, if your false teeth are going to fall out, what's going to be the temptation? Pick them up, put them back in your mouth which would constitute laboring, an absence of rest, on the Sabbath day. So that was forbidden. Further, women couldn't wear jewelry or they couldn't wear ornamental pins on their clothing on the Sabbath day, lest under the influence of vanity, we know what a struggle that is for them, they might take the jewelry off and show it off to their friends, and then now moving from holding something versus simply wearing something, now they are laboring on the Sabbath day, women were forbidden to look in a mirror on the Sabbath day because there might be the outside chance that she would spot a white hair, be tempted to pluck it out, which now constitutes harvesting on the <laughs> Sabbath day and then violation of the Sabbath. Now, we laugh, but this this were legitimate things where councils of religious leaders got together to come up with this kind of thing. You couldn't drag a chair in the dirt on the Sabbath day because the legs would then furrow the ground where they were being pulled on the ground. That would constitute plowing on the Sabbath day. You could spit on the Sabbath day. Some of you might be relieved to know, but you could only spit on a stone surface on the Sabbath day. You couldn't spit on the dirt because the spit would hit the dirt and it would furrow the ground which constituted plowing on the Sabbath day. And you would also be tempted to put your sandal into the spit and to put it down into the dirt, which would constitute labor on the Sabbath day. Considerable discussion was given to what in the world you would ever do if a tie on your sandal broke on the Sabbath day. Uh, To what how far could you go to repair that uh, and still stay uh, lawful, related to the Sabbath. And these kind of things went on and on. And all of these, in, in terms of uh, the Jews, Jesus' days, these were not suggestions or kind of helpful guidelines. Uh, these became laws on a par with Scripture. But legalism isn't, uh, you know, doesn 't exist of a distance of two thousand years from us it, it exists today, and it thrives today not only within religion but even within professing Christianity uh, as well and so examples of legalism today where taking the, the Bible way beyond what it says and, and, and then foisting these new laws uh, upon other people. the idea that uh, a Christian cannot wear makeup, uh, declaring that all Christians have to dress a certain way. Now, the Bible says that we are to dress modestly and uh, simply. But uh, beyond that, that's the the only kind of parameters that are placed upon it. But sometimes the call is to take it way beyond that. I remember in terms of this whole dress thing, listening to uh, our good friend Gail Irwin talk about an uncle of his years ago. Who was a pastor of a church in, it was either in Mississippi or Louisiana. I don't know how many of you have ever spent a summer in the South, in Mississippi or Louisiana. It is hot there, and it is humid there. And in the denomination that he was a part of, it was not acceptable for a pastor to ever appear outside without wearing a suit so he mowed his lawns with a suit in order to keep the legalism of the denomination makes me hot right now just to think about it other examples that a Christian can't eat meat on Friday I can't tell you how many fish sticks I ate as a kid while we were trying to adhere to that that the Lord can't be worshipped with musical instruments so that a Christian can never watch television or listen to a radio or read anything but the Bible or religious writings or forbidding priests or other church leaders from marrying. So these examples, even today, it's something that we're all tempted related to this area of legalism related to holiness and a, a pursuit of, of holiness. The legalist is the one who adds to the word of God. In other words, whenever God's word declares that we are to do a certain something, he assumes that if that certain something is good, then three times that must be even better. And so that is the inclination that they bring to the handling of of the word of God. And then they take the word of God way beyond uh, what the Lord intended it to be. God's intent now this legalistic uh, tendency in the pursuit of holiness has a couple of effects upon people and none of them are good It not only gives uh, uh, true holiness uh, a a bad name but uh, it, it also causes many many people to give up on the hope of ever living a holy life and here's why. When God gives us a command in his word, he also couples with that commandment the power of his Holy Spirit to keep and obey that word always. That's what he does. But he does not feel compelled and he never promises to give us the grace and the power of his Holy Spirit now to keep these man-made commandments. So if I find myself in some kind of a denomination or non-denomination or some kind of a Christian group like this that is is completely being buried by these kind of things, since I am not receiving the grace of God to be able to obey these things, it either crushes me and I figure I can never be holy or drives me into a secret life where I become selective. Where I can say, all right, I can give the appearance of holiness in this environment, these select environments. But in general, I don't live that everywhere else in life. And that creates a lot of problems for people. The other thing that it does is there are some people that absolutely thrive in that kind of an environment. Certainly the Pharisees by personality probably thrived in in that environment and the scribes as well. And so they go into an environment like that. They like all of the rules. They have the, uh, you know, personal fortitude and strength and self-discipline and determination to keep all of these man-made rules. But the tragedy of their life is that then all of their time is spent keeping these man-made things. And very often they never go on to discover and enjoy What true holiness is and what God is aiming at in our lives by by a Bible defined and a God defined uh, holiness. Now, the technical meaning of the word holy here is hagios is the Greek word that's there, and it means to be pure. That's very good Uh, to be separated, not to be separated Means always I have to be separated from something as well as separated to something. So it means to be separated from the world and it means to be separated to God. It also means to be set aside for God's use. That is very good as well. At its root, it also means to be different. That's what it means to be holy. A Christian life, to live. A holy life as defined by the scriptures means that we're going to live a different kind of life in this uh, world. And but the interesting thing about it is it is true holiness makes us different in a way that makes a difference for the kingdom of God in the world and doesn't just take up our time keeping a bunch of rules. Now, very helpfully, Peter tells us that to be holy is. Is to be like God you notice in verse 16 he quotes Leviticus where God said be holy for I am holy and so uh, holiness is to be like God because God is perfectly holy and he is perfectly pure so the way to become holy is to become more like God as opposed to becoming more like my flesh or my selfishness, or the uh, sin of the world, or like other people. Holiness is the sole property of God. It's the property of God alone. Now, this really helps me when I'm told that uh, holiness is to be like God, I really appreciate that revelation, but then raises another question for me. And the question that it raises for me is, that's very nice, but God is in heaven and I'm here. <laughs> the Father is in heaven and I'm here. So I, I, then I struggle a little bit with, all right, if to be like God is to be holy, then what in the world is I as I look at God? How do we know what God is like? How do we? How would He conduct Himself in the daily nitty gritty of this life that I live in every single day? And that's the question that it raises for me. What would He do? What would He say or not say? What would He think if He were confronted by an angry, irate neighbor? How would he handle that situation if he were being called on to compromise his integrity in order to hold on to his job or to keep the business open? That's the world we live in. When being treated unfairly by others, as these other saints were that this book was written to or being persecuted to the point of suffering, how would he conduct himself? When the whole world seems unjust and 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 so forth, all the things that we face in life. Jesus declared of himself in John chapter 14, verse nine, he who has seen me has seen the father. Jesus is the perfect revelation of the father. And because he is the perfect revelation of the father, he is the Living, breathing definition of holiness and how it is to be lived out in the fallenness of this world just as he did. no one has ever lived a holier life than the life that Jesus lived in this world, and so do i want do I want to know? what it would be to be the holy thing to say in a given situation. Then I turn to God's word and I find where Jesus was in a similar situation. And then whatever it is that he said in that situation would be a holy thing to say. I find myself in a difficult circumstance and I wonder what would Jesus do in that circumstance. And I go into the scriptures and I discover where he was in a similar circumstance. And then I know that the holy thing to do is what he did, no more, no less in that situation, and not to do all of the things that I was thinking about, contrary to the revelation of of the Scriptures. Do I want to know what's a proper attitude toward people or perspective toward people in a given situation? Then I find a place in the Gospels where Jesus was in a similar situation, And here are people that perhaps my tendency is to get angry at them or frustrated related to them. And then I discover that he wasn't frustrated with them at all in a similar circumstance. But the reasons why and it completely adjusts my attitudes and adjusts my perspective on how I view people. And since Jesus is the practical living definition of holiness It's important for us to run every single definition of holiness through his life, whether it's a definition of holiness that some church has placed upon me or some other Christian, maybe well-meaning or some church leader or some standard or definition of holiness that's come out of my own goofy noggin. I'm as crazy as anybody. I'm as legalistic as anybody. So some definition of holiness that I've come up with on my own that I now live in bondage to. I need to take every definition of holiness and put it to the standard of Jesus's life. And because he is the standard for holiness. And if it matches his life, then it gets to stay is a correct definition of holiness in my life. But if it fails the test of his life then it is not a true definition of holiness. We are wasting our time uh, investing in it, and I just jettison and reject that definition of holiness. The Apostle Paul understood this. He wrote uh, in his first letter to the church at Corinth. Corinth was a fun place, interesting place, I should say, uh, to grow up in or to live in the ancient world. It was just Sin City. It's like Vegas. I remember I was talking. I was listening to the Calvary Chapel pastor. At that time, he was the Calvary Chapel pastor in, in Las Vegas. And uh, he was talking at a pastor's conference. And, and, uh, and, and he had a brochure or something that was touting the low crime rate in uh, in Nevada. And and he read the statistics and I mean they were really low, especially compared to Modesto and and our crime rate and all. And he said, You know the reason why? There aren't any laws against anything. <laughs> Nothing's illegal here. So but but what But it was like the Las Vegas of the ancient world. It was a sailor town, lots of money, lots of wealth, all kinds of things going on. So much so that in the entertainment world of the day, whenever they would put on a play and they would represent a Corinthian, he would always be represented as immoral, uh, always drunk and debauched. That's how that's how sinful and dark of an environment that the Christians were living in in Corinth. There's nothing new under the sun. It's the same old world that we live in. And Paul wrote to them this vein of holiness. And he said, imitate me as I also imitate Christ. He recognized that's the definition of holiness. One of my favorite phases, phrases for holiness in the whole Bible. He is found five times in the Bible. And it, it speaks of The beauty of holiness. Holy life is a beautiful life. No matter how it gets portrayed, no matter how it gets scorned, no matter how it gets ridiculed, it's the most beautiful life a person can live. Because it's the life of God, it is the life of Christ, and the most beautiful life that has ever been lived in human history. Was the life that Jesus lived on this earth. It's a privilege to live a holy life. And the holiness of God. The holiness of Jesus is not just our pattern for holiness. But it's our reason for holiness as well. I desire to be holy. Because I desire to be like him. Because he's the most attractive person in all of human history. In every way. Well, how in the world do we achieve a holy life? And he speaks to that in verse 14. And he lists two things that are necessary. One, he states in the positive, uh, things that we, uh, something that we are to do. And then one, he states in the negative, uh, something that we are to avoid in order to live a life, this beautiful life of holiness. In the positive uh, vein, he said we are to be obedient children. In other words. We become holy. You ready for this? Here's the different. Heres how we become holy. Let I me mean, hold on to your seat. We become holy as we just simply learn the word of God and then obey it. It's no more complicated than that. That's how it happens. And the more we obey God's word, the more we become like God. It's really just that simple. The negative side or the speaking from a negative kind of vantage point, he said, we are not to conform ourselves to our former lusts as in our ignorance. In other words, we're not to engage in the sins that characterized our lives before we became Christians. He said, and before we became Christians, we were ignorant. There was another kingdom to be a part of. All there was is the kingdom of this world. We didn't know there was another life that could be lived other than the one that we lived and we saw everybody else living. We didn't know that there was this thing called holiness available to us and a whole new way uh, to live. And but that was when we didn't know the Lord. And we now because we know the Lord, we're not that person anymore. And so we're not ignorant of God's standard. We're not ignorant of how to become holy. And these two things produce a holy life. Growing in our obedience to the word of God, refusing to allow ourselves to be conformed or to be fashioned or to be molded by this fallen, sin-filled world. And you look there in verse 14. He said, as obedient children, not conforming yourselves. That word conforming is an interesting word in the original language. It's the same Greek word that's used. In Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, And, uh, and uh, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. The word conformed there means to be fashioned or to be molded. The world that we live in is not a morally neutral world. It is not a spiritually neutral world. This world that I live in tries to fashion me every single day. Every television show has the purpose of fashioning. Every advertisement has the purpose of fashioning. Every song, every piece of art, every, 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 everything has the purpose of fashioning me after whoever is the originator of whatever that is. And the devil is behind the whole world system, the Bible says, not behind every single event that occurs, but the fallenness of the world. So there's this fashioning process that's going on that has to be resisted. It's it's attempting to conform us and and to mold us and and to fashion and mold us after the sinfulness of this world. But by the time we become a Christian, it should be a case of uh, been there, done that. That's why I became a Christian, is to get out of that fashioning. I didn't like what it was making me into. I didn't like the fact that my flesh enjoyed cooperating. And it took the Spirit of God and the voice of God through His Word and other people to make me realize there's an alternative to where you're going in life. And so we all became Christians because we wanted to be a part of a different kingdom. We wanted someone else, something else to fashion us. Our minds, our thinking, our feeling, our doing. Something other than the world we wanted to be fashioned by God. This is one of the reasons that we came to know the Lord. It's amusing and kind of a tragic way to realize That those who reject God and his commandments in order to live the life that they think is so free and so different. From the vantage point of heaven and certainly from the vantage point of the devil as well, they're not different at all. It's just to be like everything else and to be like everyone else. There's the kingdom of God, and those that are being conformed in the image of Christ, and then there is everything else, and it is conformity, though it is called non-conformity. It is everyone doing the same stupid thing, being fashioned by the same things. Being made into the same kind of people and yet thinking that I'm living the most radical, independent, free, amazing life that can be lived. And it's just like everybody else. I, I, I try to keep up on different things in the world a little bit. the one thing I'm really negligent on is... Uh, pop culture, way behind the curve on pop culture. She so have to be like a superstar for me to become aware of you. And so, if Lady Gaga's in the room here right now, I, I couldn't pick her out. But you know, I followed. I mean, I read and everything. And her her sales are falling, and the shock effect isn't working anymore, and the whole deal. And and I saw her once on television, and. Um, And and so, you know, here she is this icon and 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 she and I don't want to really I don't want to be mean to her pick on her unduly, but she's just like this uh, mantle head for the whole thing. And so she's just basically she's just a shock jock in the music business. So how scantily clad can she play that piano? How crazy can she be? How offensive and blasphemous can she be in the whole deal? And then the world is just reeling back and buys up these music and she can sing. I'll give her that buys this stuff up by the millions and, and all and just see. Wow, that's so radical. That's so crazy, man, is she pushing the boundaries? And I look at it and I say, it's just the Madonna retread. Twenty years ago, whatever Madonna got up on the stage with her metal brazier and jumped around on the stage—wow, that's so crazy! It's shocking, and and I look at it, and I, and maybe it's just where I come from in life before I came to know the Lord. It's just dorky to me. You know why? Because no, 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 I don't want to pick on them. I'm not picking on them. You know why? You can't come up with worse and put it on a, plat- on a stage that isn't already in this dog of mine from Adam and Eve and isn't already in my heart from Adam and Eve. There's nothing Marilyn Manson can sing or do that is more evil or more wicked than what is already in my heart. And in my mind, from my background in life, and so it's all just the same old thing, the whole world, the only radical, different, beautiful life, truly different life that's lived in this world is the one that's lived after Christ and the life that's being fashioned after that life and the power Of the Holy Spirit, everything else is conformity, no matter how crazy of a hairdo you put on it, how crazy a clothes you put on it, how exotic of an environment you put these people in. It's just the same old thing. There's the kingdom of God and there's everything else and everything else fashions just the same thing. Now, all of this brings us back to not Lady Gaga or Madonna. And I don't mean to be unduly cruel to them. And I would hope that they could pick up a teaching and do fine with it. Maybe not this one. (laughs) But um, I want them saved. I want everybody saved. I want everybody saved. But this brings us back to where we started. Why in the world would the Apostle Peter begin this series of practical instruction to these Christians who are in the middle of suffering, why would he speak of the subject of holiness to them? Almost the first thing out of the gate. Again, it does seem like an odd subject to me because I would think that these kind of people, people like us, are more in need of encouragement than an exhortation to holiness and obedience. But here's what Peter is driving at. And it's a truth that he knew from personal experience. As Christians, holiness is always vital in our relationship with God. But it is especially vital when we find ourselves in deep difficulty and trials in our lives. Because obedience to God's word keeps our relationship healthy and unbroken and intimate And that kind of a relationship, intimacy, unbrokenness of a relationship with, with God, that kind of intimacy with God, what that does is it allows us to then live in the middle of our trial, confident in the fact that we will receive the full expression of God's wisdom and His power and His love in our lives. There is a tremendous confidence in the heart of the child of God in times of suffering when they know I am right with God. When I, they know my relationship is instant with God. I can stop a conversation with him mid-sentence and pick it up in a half hour and he's tracking with me. That when I think about praying to him, I don't have to think, oh no, I can't bring this to him immediately because I've got this long-term Deliberate Sin going on in my life And when we have that going on in our life When we go to turn to God In the greatness of our need There's a great hesitation to do it To even pray to him at all And now here is this one that is wants to be our friend Wants to bless us in the way that he does And we won't even turn to him for help And then if we do turn to him for help in our heart of hearts, we have absolutely no confidence that he will help us because we know of our own deliberate choosing. We are not right with him because we are living in disobedience and in unholiness. And that is a terrible place for a Christian to find themselves in when we find ourselves in deep water. There is nothing more miserable in all of life for the child of God than to be in a deep trial and then lacking that sense of closeness to God and thus without that confidence of God's grace and His blessing, uh, His freedom to be able to pour that out upon our lives. And Peter knew something of it. the morning of Jesus' crucifixion, he denied Jesus three times. Decided to follow Jesus from afar. The third time he denied Jesus. Our eyes locked. The Bible says he went off and he wept bitter tears. Many of us know something about that. Miserable. And he spent the next three days and the next three nights without the confidence of blessing in his relationship with Jesus that would have otherwise been there. The Bible says the devil sifted him as wheat during that time. And you can bet one of the things that he sifted Peter with was, look what you've done now. Look at how you have denied Jesus after all he's done for you. Now you think you can come back to him and that life is going to be... You're going to still be an apostle and God's going to use you and that God's going to accept you. No way. And that's the kind of thing that the devil does to us when we give him that kind of an opportunity. And Peter, having already lived it in his own life, doesn't want a single one of us to ever find ourselves in a comparably deep trial, whatever it is, and lack the confidence that I can turn to God and, and do so from an obedient life and thus have the confidence that God can express the fullness of his grace and his love and his mercy upon my life. As Christians, we can stand strong if everything else is going against us in life, if every other person abandons us in life. As long as I, we know that we are right with God, that there's no distance or separation in our relationship with him caused by disobedience. And thus we we have that confidence that we've been speaking of. And to have that kind of a relationship with God anytime, but especially in suffering, that is a very, very rich place to be. That is a priceless peace and confidence to Possess. Sin produces distance and separation in our relationship with God, and during a time of trial, the last thing in the world we need is distance and separation in our relationship with God. People say of Christianity all of the time, and I agree with it. I say Christianity isn't a religion, it is a relationship, and it's true. And as is the case with Any relationship we care about in our lives, it's important that we do not do something to the other person that damages the relationship. And in a relationship with God, deliberate disobedience and unholy living damages the relationship. And it puts distance in the relationship. What husband and wife doesn't know something of that? Or parent or a child? Or one or the other takes advantage of the relationship, is disrespectful to the other person and the relationship, mistreats the other person in the relationship and what happens. Now there's distance. Now there's separation. Now damage is being done to the relationship. But if it isn't rectified, some real problems are going to occur. The same thing is true in our relationship with the Lord. Willful disobedience and unholiness is disrespectful toward him. It damages the relationship and it distances us in a relationship at the world's worst time to be distant from God in a relationship in times of difficulty. The other side is true as well. That as we live a life of holiness and simple obedience to God's word, then when the troubles come and they do come. And we're just instant in our relationship with the Lord, talking with him about everything and inside of us with whatever we're facing is that deep, deep confidence that I have given God the ability to express the fullness of his love and his grace toward me in this situation. And now I will watch what he does. And that is priceless in times of difficulty. Sometimes. I have the privilege, in fact, quite often of talking with Christians who are in the middle of a great trial. And um, as they begin to talk and as I talk about a lot of different things. But if I hear them say, this is a very hard trial that I'm in the middle of. But it's drawn me closer to God. It's made me love him more. It has produced a deeper relationship with him than I ever dreamed could be possible. Then when I hang up that phone or I walk out of that room or walk away from that person, the conversation having ended, in my heart I think they're going to make it. They're going to be absolutely fine because they're using this season of difficulty to go even deeper in their relationship with the Lord which is the one thing that is absolutely needed. It makes all of the difference, and Peter knew it. It's a simple truth here, and, but I think it's an important meditation from the Word of God. He moves from the mind. He moves to the area of obedience so that we can have this kind of confidence, needed confidence in our life, a confidence that God wants us to have in our lives in our relationship with Him when we're faced with this kind of difficulty. Important all of the time in our Christian lives, but especially vital in times of trials and in times of suffering. So the single most important thing we can do during seasons of great trial is to draw even closer to the Lord, and that necessitates the removal of anything that damages or hinders the relationship. So today we let the word of God search us in this room today for any deliberate disobedience to God's word, any deliberate unholiness in our lives. That we can so easily grow accustomed to distance and a relationship with God that we can grow accustomed to And this passage reminds us that in an instant in the fallenness of this world, things can happen where we will need in a nanosecond a deep, intimate, personal, unbroken relationship with God in order to survive the difficulty that has instantly been introduced into our life. So we shouldn't wait until that hits to make sure that this is the relationship that we have with God. It's a great passage to take a walk with even later today or to take whatever kind of time is necessary before we lay our head down on the pillow tonight and go to sleep and to say, I used to have that relationship with you if it applies to you. Lord, I used to have this kind of a relationship with you. But I know if the bottom fell out in my life this coming week, that I'd be playing catch-up in this. I don't have a deep, close relationship with you, and I don't want to walk in the risk of that place and the lack of peace of that place another day or another week of my life. And it can all turn, act of my will, in a moment. Everything can change in a minute. And that relationship is there right where we left it to begin it once again with God. And so great preventative kind of medicine that Peter gives us here to make sure that this is in place because the most important thing to us in a time of difficulty and suffering is the health of our relationship with God. Everything then ties off of that and is secondary to that. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Father, we thank You this morning for this very, very practical instruction from Your Word. No one but the Maker could know us the way that You know us. No one but a perfectly pure and loving, beautiful God could give us the kind of instruction that You give us in this book. We thank You for Your instruction today, Lord. And we pray for one another in this room as just simple Christians. And we ask that this passage would do its full work in every one of our lives and that this day would not end today with a single one of us not possessing a very current, close, obedient, personal relationship with You no matter what tomorrow brings. Lord, we desire that confidence for each one and what Monday will be and Tuesday will be and Wednesday will be. And so we ask for that work of your Holy Spirit and our lives individually, personally, and the lives of everyone in this room. And we ask it in Jesus name. Amen.